The question is, are you familiar with the Center for Open Sandwiches? Oh. Wow. Is the, that based in India? The, in, in New Delhi? No, it is not. Oh. The Center... <laughs> Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused as the latest public health study as I am by my online journal passwords, why is it that it takes me seven times to reset my journal password, online uh, journal submission password, every time I want to submit an article? Oh, it's such a pain. Are you able to do it? No, I have, you know? I have one password. Can you tell us? That's a password app that does things automatically. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, so do I. But it doesn't work for, I find some, it doesn't some work sites, for yeah. the editorial ones because they're all the same. And so then it can't figure out which, which they all start with, you know, editorial manager or whatever. I have, I have terrible trouble. It's so hard being an academic, it's isn't so it? It's so hard. I just use the same password for everything. Which is? You want to tell us One, what it two, is? One, two, three, four, five. Matt Fox is my spiritual leader. Nice. Exclamation point. Nice. Double exclamation point. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I am Matt Fox uh, from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health here at Boston University, and I am here with Chris Gill and Don Thea. Welcome back, Matt. Thank you, but I was back two weeks ago. Well, that was just like five minutes ago. Was it? I thought it was two weeks ago no, when we recorded was... the last episode two weeks ago. No, oh, that's it was five right. minutes ago. Wasn't it two weeks ago? No, he's right. It was two weeks ago. Oh. God. Yeah, I, I was I in thought... France four weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I keep track of things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, listeners, you have to listen to the last podcast to find that at all funny, but it is very funny. Anyway, uh, Chris, do you want to tell us anything about the Population Health Exchange website? I've got nothing to say at all. You have nothing to say this week? No. no. It's the one week when I got nothing written down. I actually copied and pasted what I had last time. Just go to the Population Health website, people. Just do it. <laughs> Leslie Talali is the director. She will be very happy if you go to that website. We all will be. It's www.pothealthyx.org. <laughs> Just go. It's how to live long. That's what I understand. It's all instructions on how to live long. And one of them is to walk 7,500 steps or more every day. I, I heard it was 4,400 steps or don't bother. I thought it was uh, live true. long and prosper. 10,000 10, a day is the, is the key. Okay. I know the audience is desperately waiting for the words. Now on to the show. And brie. Lots of brie. What? Yeah. They brie? Brie because they had a lot of that in France. <laughs> Were you in France? I was, four Did, weeks wait, ago. Wait, what were you doing there, by the way? Walking 20,000 steps a day. <laughs> no, you, that's a double bonsai. Eating and drinking wine. This, this, is not, this is the worst. I'm not, I'm not even going to be... I haven't got through a single paragraph yet without... My mission is complete. <sighs> so today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at whether... Olfactory impairment is related to death. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about whether journals have a role to play in counteracting health misinformation. And then in our amazing and amusing, we will get into the things that make us laugh out loud, or Don will tell us about the survival analysis in many great TV shows, such as Game of Thrones. By the way, I should tell you I'm very sorry. Did you see that meme going around? I'm very yeah. sorry that your, your dragon show ended stupidly. I'm very... <laughs> Very sorry. So let's get into segment one. Chris looks uh, upset about the dragon show comment. Did, no. Were you a big Game of Thrones guy? No, but I do notice that, that, that Game of Thrones should not be, they should not use the acronym GOT. It should be GOTH. God, Game and of Thrones. Preferably GOTHS. Goths. Got it. Okay. I we will, got all, all wrong. I will, uh, not, I will speak to the... If all you're right. watching them, yeah. 
So segment one, let's get into the article, which looked at whether olfaction is related to mortality. So this was published in the... And you should explain what olfaction means. Uh, no, you should. It means the ability to smell things. Okay. I assumed we would get into that. I just wanted to say a big fancy word and pretend I knew what it meant. So it was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and it was entitled Relationship Between Poor Olfaction and Mortality Among Community-Dwelling Older Adults a cohort study by lead author uh, Bo Xing Liu of the Department of Medical Epidemiology and Biostatistics over at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. Hmm. So here's some of the headlines for this one. Wake up and smell the coffee. Why hmm. a poor sense of smell may mean an earlier death, says the CBC. Study. Poor sense of smell linked to early death, says MSN. Declining sense of smell linked to a higher chance of early death, says the New York Post. And Fox News says losing sense of smell could indicate impending death. Mm. Seems a little a bit of an overstatement there, but okay. So, Don. Emphasis on the could. Could. Don. I mean, anything, Matt. anything could. could. Don. Matt. Don, tell us. Tell us. Give us the... Give us the 411 on this. Okay. I really did not know this. What? That there has been this association with um, lack of ability to smell, poor, yep. olfaction, poor olfaction, and early death. This is not the first study to look at this. There are other right. studies that have looked at this. I only this. knew about this in the case of Parkinson's disease. Yeah, I did which, not know that. Which seems or, to be one of the... Or Alzheimer's disease. Or Alzheimer's. It seems to be one of the yeah. main so, ways this works. Uh, it was a little surprising given how my sense of smell has been decreasing lately. In any event, yeah, now a little bit of shake here and there. So so this is not the first study to, to look at this, but the authors claim that this study was different because they looked at various lengths of follow-up and that they used a community-based biracial cohort of older subjects to assess the association with sex, race, and general health. So they used a population called Health ABC, or Health, Aging, and Body Composition, which was a cohort that was designed to assess body composition um, and its effect on disease and disability that was enrolled between 77 and, uh, I'm sorry, 1997 and 1998. And they enrolled three, about 3,000 well-functioning community dwellers who were aged at the time between 70 and 79 nine years in Pittsburgh and Memphis in the United States. The eligibility criteria for that original study, the, the Health ABC study, was that the individuals had to have no difficulty in walking a quarter of a mile, climbing 10 steps, or performing activities of daily living. They had no active cancer in the pre previous three years, and they had no plan to move away from the study area in the next three years. And this group was followed from inception in 98, it's 97, 98, through 2014, so a pretty extended period of time, with annual visits, either in the clinic where the study was being conducted or at home, and they had quarterly phone contacts. So they stayed in touch with these individuals over time. And at the beginning, they did a 12-item brief smell identification test, which is called the BSIT, which was given to 2,500 of these participants who attended the year three clinic visit. So it wasn't at the inception of the study. It was in three years after things had been progressing for a while. And that was in 99 and 2000. And that apparently is a panel of various things to smell, which I wrote down and I can't find out what it is, but they're, they're, like they're sort coffee of and every, like everyday that. things like gasoline and petroleum and coffee. And, and, you know, it's, I, I guess it was sort of like a little scratch and sniff kit. <laughs> <laughs> that they use. And so the people that were omitted from the analysis had a missing 
uh, baseline test, this BSIT test, or missing covariates, or were lost to follow-up. And, and in the end, they had about 2,300 individuals that were, went into the analytic sample, and they were followed up at 3, 5, 10, and 13 years after baseline. Oh, here it is. The 12 odorants were common in daily life. Banana, chocolate, cinnamon, gasoline, lemon, onion, paint thinner, pineapple, rose, soap, smoke, and turpentine. Hmm. They were given based on how many... A few they, of my favorite things. <laughs> Is turpentine different from paint thinner? Uh, apparently, I guess. It had its own lane there. Huh, so, so based on these 12 odorants, whether they could identify them correctly, they were given a, a score of 0 to 12, and they then categorized that into poor, moderate, or good ability to, to, to pick up these, these odors. And the outcomes were hospitalization record. I mean, the outcomes were death at, that they gleaned from hospital records, verbal autopsy, physical um, function before death. And then the cause of death was adjudicated by a panel of physicians. And then they looked at the cumulative all-cause mortality at those same endpoints, 3, 5, 10, 13 years, as well as the cause-specific mortality from Parkinson's disease, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and or respiratory death, mm -hmm. um, COPD, or pneumonia. And the, the baseline covariates that they also assessed in their analysis were age, sex, race, education, anthropometrics, lifestyle, i.e. smoking, alcohol, or level of activity, and then their own self-reported health, whether they thought at the beginning that they were in generally good health or not. They did a mediator analysis, which I'm going to punt to Matt and to, to sort of walk us through, but that was essentially looking at a, a mental status evaluation at clinic visits 1, 3, 5, 8, 19, 11, and 16. Those are the visits, not the years. And they assessed whether there was dementia based on that mental health exam at the first visit or whether there was a decline in this mental status evaluation of more than one and a half standard deviations from baseline at a subsequent visit or whether there was a hospitalization record that gave the diagnosis of dementia or Parkinson's disease. Um, they also looked at weight loss because they thought that weight loss could be part of the chain of causality, if I'm, uh, if I'm able to use that yeah, term, sure. in terms of loss of sense of smell and poor food intake and then eventual death. They did survival analysis for cause-specific mortality, mediator analysis for, par for the role of Parkinson's and dementia and or weight loss in this, in this chain of causality. And then they did some sensitivity analyses looking at alternate weighting schemes. So the results were uh, mean age of 76. I think that that's probably um, at, the, at, the, at the baseline. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that poor olfaction was associated with older age, male sex, black race, lower education level, alcohol drinking, smoking, and fair to poor stated health status at the beginning. It was also apparently quite strongly associated with prevalent dementia, Parkinson's disease, or chronic kidney disease, and it was not at all associated with cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, or hypertension. Hmm. So in the 13 years, there were 1,200 subjects that died, 13 years of observation, 1,200 subjects died, and there was an, an association between poor olfaction and death that was found in both sexes and both races, and it was associated with death in years 10 and 13. So poor versus good olfaction had a... Uh, 46% increase in the risk of death at year 10. But it seemed to be concentrated on that group of people who stated that their health was good at baseline. They had an even higher level of effect with 62% higher mortality 
among people who had good health as opposed to not good health. Um, and it was strongly associated with the presence of Parkinson's disease or dementia. And I think what I'll do is, I guess, the cl- conclusions were not sh- changed by the sensitivity analysis, I believe. Is that right, Matt? <laughs> I can't remember. Um, I'm going to say yes. But the mediation analysis uh, showed huh? that the, the presence of those diseases were associated 20... The yeah. analysis was totally confusing. I yeah, think, totally I think confusing. we're going to have to get but into We're going to dive into that, because Matt and I talked about that a little bit, and we'll, there's some we'll, very we'll, interesting we'll, uh, assumptions that went into will, that we analysis. We will definitely come back to the, anyway, the mediation. But, through, but, that, through, that, through that potentially flawed mediation analysis, the authors concluded that <laughs> only about 20% of the effect was associated with Parkinson's and dementia, and therefore they conclude that there, or suggest that there might be some other factor besides this neurodegenerative yep. association with poor olfaction that yep. is contributing to death. And that is the mystery of this paper. And that's what I thought was the wooliest part of this whole thing. Yeah, it was mediation. Like, yeah, and, okay, the, and so, the 30% so, so, versus 70% thing is like, sure. what? Yeah. what? So, I don't get it. So okay. walk us through it, Matt. Well, no, 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 no. Let's, let's, let's leave. Actually, I want to do this in two pieces. Let's do the, the main analysis first, and then we can come back to the mediation analysis because I think it makes more sense to do it all together. So... So the the main take-home message, as far as I can tell, is essentially roughly a 50% increase in mortality associated with poor olfaction, possibly even higher amongst those who are healthy, which is something I want to come back to because I don't really get why that would be. Chris, what's your what's your take on the, the quality of the study or, or, or whether you buy these results? Well, I guess I didn't really feel that this taught me anything that I didn't already kind of know, which is that I, I've, you know, I remember from residency this whole business about Parkinson's disease, part, partly because at the Portland VA, we had a lot of patients with Parkinson's mm. disease. So, so this was the, like... The whole business being what exactly, that, that, though? That poor olfaction was associated with Parkinson's disease. So we know that poor olfaction is associated with Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's disease. We know that Parkinson's disease is significantly associated with mortality. Uh, we also know that Alzheimer's disease and other forms of interventions are commonly misclassified with Parkinson's disease specifically, and vice versa, and that there's a tremendous undiagnosis of all of these. And so when you look at like the, the cause-specific associations between poor olfaction and death, the, the big striking finding is with Parkinson's disease and dementia, according to these data, right? Which is basically saying, oh yeah, I knew that 30 years ago. Uh, what's new? And then when they looked at like cardiovascular disease and, and cancer and respiratory diseases, the, this, the link to olfaction was based on their figures barely perceptible and maybe mm-hmm. nothing at all. Mm-hmm. So this is where I kind of like, go, okay, so yet again, we have found that having a neurodegenerative disease, which one would not be terribly surprised, would affect a lot of neurons, like olfactory neurons. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't seem like a total shocker to me. So isn't this just saying that bad Parkinson's disease is worse than less bad Parkinson's disease? It, it, is that what they're saying, though? I mean, is that's that not the what they're saying, right. but that's what I'm saying. Yeah. When I read this, I was like, that's what I came up with. Like, yet again, we're seeing this association. You know, what I don't know, because I, I don't understand the neurology of, of this, is that because in addition to there being the death of you know neurons associated with Parkinson's disease and the strida substantia nigra where it is are there also death of, of olfactory neurons? I don't know. Or is this because some of these neural networks, these circuits that come out of the substantia nigra and the, the, the neurons that are targeted in Parkinson's disease 
somehow loop back to the olfaction and so that there is a loss of function of olfactory neurons, even if they're not actually being killed because of the general global neurodegenerative process. I don't know that either, but I don't think it really matters because I think what they're, that the only part of this, ba this paper that I was really convinced by is that poor olfaction in the setting of Parkinson's disease is bad, mm -hmm. which I already knew. So, and then this business that like, we can only account for 30% of the, of the increased mortality related to olfaction. I didn't really see in their data how, where that came from. I, mm. I was not persuaded by that at all. Well, it came from this, this weird analysis that Matt is going to tell us Which about. Which I couldn't understand. I know. So I, I guess I, I was why we're back giving to you. it to Matt to, um, to explain. I was really puzzled by that. It felt like the, you know, it went from the obvious to the smoke and mirrors and in between I didn't quite connect them. Yeah. So I, I, what, what I want to talk about with this one, and, and again, I'm, I'm not putting it off indefinitely but i don't i don't want to get into the the mediation analysis right away is is the the fact that i think what this article illustrates to me is that language really does matter because it's not clear what we're talking about if we don't you know if we don't use clear language so we did the the article by um uh anders Hussfeld for years years weeks ago in which it was the BMJ Christmas edition article that talked about caviar and yeah. being a millionaire. Yeah. And it, it, it highlighted the difference between prediction, description, prediction, and causation. And so the, the language in this particular article, the one that we're talking about now, seems to me very imprecise as to whether we are talking about causation, description, or prediction. So I'm going to just read a few sentences from this paper. I'll go right to the end. The conclusion for this paper says, in conclusion, the study provides clear evidence of an association, so highlight the word association, between olfaction, poor olfaction and long-term mortality among older adults independently of commonly suspected confounders. In other words, there is an association, I'm not calling it causal, but I'm going to say it's true adjusted for all these confounders. Well, if it's prediction, not causation, then you don't need to adjust for confounders. So right, good point. it seems to me there's this sort of weird, you know, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the dancing around the language here. I think they're trying to say causation, not association. This elevated risk can only be partially explained by dementia or Parkinson's disease and weight loss, indicated that some health consequences of poor olfaction in the context of aging are unknown. So we're talking consequences and explanation. So that sounds to me like causation. causation. Okay. In other cases, they say together dementia and Parkinson's disease and weight loss potentially explain 28% of the higher mortality. In other cases, they say, of note, the association was driven by participants who reported excellent or good health at the time of the BSIT. I can give you other examples where it's, it's not clear whether we're talking about causation or description or prediction. My question to you both is, Chris, you said, so this was novel to me. I didn't know there was this association. And so when I, when I, put down my prior on this, I said, I think these are going to be related, but I don't think it's going to be related causally. Not that, not that there's no causal structure underlying it, but that the causal structure is not going to be poor olfaction causes death. Right, right. It's an epiphenomenon. And so the question becomes, does anyone believe that if we had an intervention that would prevent people from losing the ability to smell but did nothing else, it would prevent them from dying? Yes, but in a, in only one setting that I can think of, which is smoking. Right. Don't smoke. Yeah. Or or don't sit in a house that's, that's on improve. fire. Right. Or there's a gas leak. Right. right. But this is this or is you're eating you're eating food that's that's gone bad. But better treatment of your Parkinson's disease. No. Right. 
And so, sure, it may have a, a tiny effect. Yeah. And they talk about that. In fact, they specifically say they, they didn't actually measure any causes related to things that might be, you know, poor smell related like fire because there were so few events of that nature that they couldn't do it. So so none of us, none of the three of us believes that you could have an intervention that would change the olfaction that would then change the mortality, which is to say none of the three of us believes this is causal. Right, right. They seem to be saying that they think it is. And so what would be I, the mechanism by which olfaction causes death as opposed to just being olfaction. associated with, yeah. sorry, poor olfaction, as opposed to just being a marker of, which, which to me is interesting, actually, because mm. I didn't know about this. But it doesn't tell me anything about that we could, we could somehow prevent the, the symptom, what I think of as the symptom, and prevent the death. Right, right. And yep. that brings us to the figure... In the paper. <laughs> Which you, you, you desperately want to get to. All right, let's do it. Okay. There's a lot, a lot of arrows, this figure. So the, the, the article, the way that the authors are getting at this idea of explaining what percentage of the effect, quote unquote, is explained by certain things is they do a mediation analysis. And so this is the first paper I think that we have read that's contained a directed acyclic graph, which is just a causal diagram. It's a, it's a, uh, a, diagram that describes your best understanding of the data generating mechanism, meaning what are the underlying relationships between variables in the universe that lead to my data being the way it is. So they have this diagram in which they're looking at two variables, the poor olfaction being your exposure, the outcome being death. uh, death. And then they have various variables that they think are either affected by or affect these Two variables. So, uh, give you an example. They have an arrow that they draw from poor olfaction to dementia or Parkinson's disease, and then an arrow from dementia and Parkinson's disease to the outcome mortality. And I think we would disagree with that. I don't see how poor olfaction causes dementia. Right. I think the association is the opposite way. Right. Dementia that causes, dementia poor, causes poor olfaction, or more likely, something else is going on that. That is the explanation for some both, epiphenomenon whatever of dementia. It is, whatever. Maybe, maybe, say, for instance, glue sniffing. You whatever know, it glue is, glue sniffing sure. could affect olfaction hypothetically. And I'm dementia. not saying that it and does. And mortality. And increase and and could lead to dementia. And, and mortality, right? Yeah. right? So all of the above. The, the the idea here is then they do what's called a mediation analysis, and I'm going to do this very simply. So, for the epi gurus in the in the audience, please give me a pass on this one, um, to basically say essentially the idea here is that if we have a model, that a regression model that looks at the relationship between poor olfaction and death, and then we add a variable that is we think is a mediator of that relationship, then we are essentially blocking the pathway through which that mediator affects the outcome. The effect should go down. And by comparing the effect that we have in those two different models, we can sort of get a sense for how much. Now, that isn't how you really do it. There are more sophisticated techniques to actually get at these specific indicators of mediation, but that's the general idea. But it only works if you have a true mediator. In other words, it only works if A causes B causes C, which is poor olfaction causes dementia causes death. And we don't believe that to be true. No, right. It's a fundamental flaw in the whole logic. And that I think is is problematic, which is why I I don't put a lot of weight into the mediation analysis. And that's why I'm not going to spend any more time on interpreting the numbers because I don't don't think they have the meaning that, that... because the, the alternative authors. pathway is totally plausible. Which hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative disease. Why would it be surprising to find that it affected lots of functions of the brain, neurons. such as the right. olfaction, like a cranial nerve, right? right. For example, 
And so to me, you know, to me, this is, again, it's interesting. I, this, I think this is a case where association is interesting, even though it's not causation. It's interesting to know that there is this relationship between these two conditions, poor olfaction and, and dementia, poor olfaction and death. I, I think that's really interesting, but I don't think we have anything causal going on there. And therefore, I don't understand the desire to adjust for confounding. I think you'd want a crude analysis, which said to me just what if if I have poor olfaction, what are what are my chances of of dying? And so I think, you know, I just want to make the plea out there. I think it's really important to think about language very carefully. I mean, to think about the causal structure very carefully, but also think about language because you're trying to communicate to your audience what it is you're trying to do. And our ability to evaluate this work is entirely dependent on what the goal is. If it's if it's association, then my critique would be just don't adjust for anything. Mm-hmm. If the goal is causation, I would say you're probably barking up the wrong tree because I don't see the the logical mechanism. Yeah, I agree. And and the fact that you didn't see any of these associations for the other major causes of death, you know, really begs at the, you know, points to the exclusive association with dementia and Parkinson's disease. You know, their claims of 30% notwithstanding. Yep. Any any last points anyone wants to raise before I take the last word? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's important to underscore the fact that this was a major article published in the yeah. Annals of Internal Medicine yeah. and went through peer review. And and I don't I, I don't think that the authors were being duplicitous. I don't think they were being duplicitous at all. At all. No, no, but, no. But, but I I just want to completely agree with your your issue about language imprecision, because I don't think that they were intending to say that this is causative, even though that arrow is misplaced in the figure. Mm. I think that they were just being a little bit imprecise in their language. Cause you know, when you, if you, if they, if they were intending to do the uh. former, I think it would have ha- had a more prominent role either in the title or in the abstract. And the title is relationship between poor olfaction and mortality. And in the abstract, the conclusion is poor olfaction is associated with higher long-term mortality among older adults, particularly those with excellent to good health at baseline. Neurodegenerative diseases and weight loss explain only part of the increased mortality, which we disagree with because the construct of the model we believe was not correct. So I, I would, yeah, so I disagree with you. I actually think it's the opposite. I think they did intend causality. I think they were imprecise in the language about it because I think journals are often hesitant to allow you to say anything about causation. But I think their model makes it explicit. They do think there is a causal relationship. And and I, I, one thing I want to say is here is, no, I don't think in any way the authors were being duplicitous. Actually, I think they were being the opposite. I think they were being transparent. And I, I, I actually want to commend them on putting in this diagram here because most papers don't include the diagram like this and therefore all the assumptions that go into the model are completely transparent are, are, are lack transparency the only reason we can understand that we think there's an issue and then you could potentially go back and you know, do it differently is because they gave us the assumptions which most papers never do so i actually like this I, even I, though it led to 100%. us disagreeing with them no i think a a a, a DAG or a causal diagram that that leads to, you know, that is problematic is better than none because it tells you what the assumptions are and then we can have that conversation. Mm-hmm. If they didn't include this, we wouldn't know and we wouldn't be having this conversation at all. We'd just say, well, I don't really know exactly what they did, but they seem to have come up with this number. So they, I, I commend them for let that Let me just part. Add, add one more point. The 
the editorial in the annals that went along with this did a sort of a review of, of, of what they did. And, and they say, Lou and colleagues show that olfactory impairment is a significant predictor mm. of mortality and that dementia, Parkinson's and weight loss are possible drivers of this association. So they're not saying that. So, mm. so the conclusion by the editorial commenter is not that it was causal, that it was predictive. Uh, that's not to say that that's what. Wait a the, minute. Wait a minute. Is that true, though? Read, read the si- statement again. Olfactory impairment is a significant predictor. predictor of mortality, and that dementia, Parkinson's disease, and weight loss are possible drivers of this association. Which is impre- again are imprecise. Driving, okay. Okay. Driving the association between olfaction and mortality. Right. But then they say through. They don't. That's period. Oh, I thought you said through malnutrition and weight loss. No. We note the challenges. Did I just make that up? I think you did, because I didn't read that. Uh-oh. I just totally made then that the up. The next sentence is, we note I the challenges of using olfactory about- loss as a potential predictor of neurodegenerative disease. Most older adults show unawareness of olfactory decline. Mm-hmm. So, so it's so, not a great predictor. No, no, but there is some potential causal role I thought they were getting at. Not that, not that it is... That, that dementia causes poor olfaction... Oral faction, so you now can't smell. You don't. You consume less because you don't like the food, whatever it is, mm-hmm. which leads to death. You so that's, that eat. is theoretically possible. Yeah, I also, also don't see that as a huge, and it's still obviously the ultimate cause or the earlier cause is the dementia. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you, you you also might like eat a ton more salt yeah. because food has no flavor. Yeah. without the sense of smell. That's true. So. Yeah. Okay. All anyway, right. we're we're I guess we're we're basically saying interesting association causal. We don't yep, buy it exactly. Okay. I did want to end with just one comment about this paper, which is, um, and it's not the authors; it's the annals. The annals puts the appendix in the actual PDF that you download. It's nice, which I really appreciate. Yeah. You know, you don't have to go searching for it. What if if I were to ask you guys, what percentage do you, of people do you think the typical article that has appendices does anybody read the appendix? Wow, super low. What percentage? I, I asked that of students that where article where I signed articles like the one that uh, you and I yep. did, where the appendix is really, really important because yep. it really enlightens exactly what's and very few do. Yeah, I I wonder if it's more than ten percent. Yeah, probably not. That'd be a good study to do. I bet. I mean, the data right there, they have the download rate, so you yeah. can tell us. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to our second segment where we were going to talk about an article that was published in JAMA. Uh, It was by Paul Armstrong and it was called Counteracting Health Misinformation, A Role for Medical Journals. And this article is taking on the problem that we have all noted over the recent years of more and more misinformation about health being disseminated through social media and potentially through the media as well. And again, I'm going to quote a bit from the article here. So they talk about the fact that medical misinformation is nothing new, but has become pervasive in recent years. And we have so many different digital resources that that are disseminating this information. And so if you want to say something that is health-related, whether it is true or not, you can put it out there on social media. And if you've got a, a big enough following or you can get this picked up by somebody else with a big following, you can get your health claim to be taken seriously, whether it's not. And there's been uh, numerous examples of cases where this is has uh, negative health consequences. So misinformation about, they refer to safety and effectiveness of vaccines, which we know about, Zika virus outbreak, water fluoridation, genetically modified foods, treatment for common diseases. So we've got all this inaccurate health information that's being disseminated through social media. And the author of this article asks the question of whether 
journals have a role in playing and trying to combat this dissemination of negative information. And I have to admit, my immediate reaction to this was immediately no. They don't mm-hmm. um, for reasons that I can I can talk about, but 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 I read further and and I I, I take some of the author's point to heart, which is that his his basic point is that journals aren't just simply journals anymore the way that they used to, where they would publish information and that would go out to the scientific community and that's all it was. Journals now try to play a role in social media, so they tweet out findings, they try to develop a, a, a following that is broader than just the scientific community, and they are putting out information. And so if we were to be publishing information that was counteracting some of this negative health information and then was being disseminated the same way some of this inaccurate information was being disseminated, then we potentially could get ourselves into a situation where journals were helping. Um, and he puts out various strategies that this potentially could could take, science literacy being one. He refers to health-specific inoculation, where you're trying to inoculate the population from negative messages to begin with, containment of dissemination of poor information, and debunking myths. Okay, fine. So my question to you guys is, you know, my, my immediate reaction to this was skepticism. I, I, my immediate reaction was, I don't see journals being able to take on this particular problem and having any credible impact. Am I wrong about this? Do you think that, that journals could actually play a role in counteracting the negative messages that are out there? Or negative, not negative, uh, inaccurate information that's being put out there on social media about health? Boy, this is such a deep problem. I mean, it it is yep. it is the it is the dark underbelly of social media and the and and all of the issues and that it may we're not dealing be the dark. With, I mean, it may be the primary purpose of social, social media. media sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a really important fundamental problem, and it just in terms of um, dissemination of accurate information because inaccurate information is as accessible as accurate information and oftentimes inaccurate information is splashier Mm -hmm. is 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 easier to be absorbed by people who don't really have the necessary background to be able to critically assess it and and you know it's 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 doing damage it's doing real health damage and in so many ways, not only not only in the United States, but globally. I mean, there are social media messages that are being picked up by the population, say, in Western Pakistan, that is disseminating misinformation about polio virus. And, and, and there's a massive epidemic of polio, outbreak of wild-type polio paralysis in Western Pakistan right now because people are keeping their doors shut and not letting the vaccinators in because of things that they're reading on social media. That's one of hundreds of examples of both overtly harmful stuff or, or misinformation about potentially healthful things that people can do. I, I really have no idea whether the journals could play a meaningful role. I think that whatever role that they play would be, would be marginal. And I think that they probably, in my opinion, ought to stick to their knitting and ought to really be the repository of, of where truthful, honest discourse about rigorous quality science occurs. And that, the, the, in essence, the marketing of that truth needs to be taken up by other organizations. Mm-hmm. Chris, what do you think? 
Yeah, I totally agree with what both of you have said here. And my cynicism is, is deep on this one. It's not that I disagree with what, what uh, Armstrong suggested. I think these are all fine things. And yes, we should do them all. But, I, but at the same time, do I think that it's going to have much of an impact? No, because I don't think that this is where, where you know, medical information is now driven. It's driven by Facebook and Twitter, uh, unfortunately. And there's no filter on that. Um, uh, sorry. And just to be clear, though, could journals not have a role to play on Twitter and social media? Sure, they could do that, and they could, maybe they should. But it's a drop in the bucket. And you know, we've even reviewed papers on this podcast where we talk about like the you know the extra propagation the of of fake news, fake medical news spreads faster and further than true facts that are often boring. And so you know, in a way, the deck is so stacked against us now. Are there things that could be better about the medical literature? I mean, I think one of the reasons why there is this propagation of anti-scientific like pseudo, you know, information is that we are gradually losing our faith in the validity of the scientific literature. And to a degree, the journals do play a role in that because I think they, pun- they, they publish a tremendous amount of bad science. And so like one cynical solution would be like, let's have fewer journals and like better peer review, you know, do we need quite so many journals? I think the answer is no. I think what we've, we're seeing is a propagation of bad information on the bottom and very little additional quality information at the top. And, I, and we had actually discussed this in a prior podcast about whether we're contributing to this by pointing through out our cynicism. through our cynicism, pointing out um, mm-hmm. how articles right. are missing the mark and right. that the, you know, the, the rigor isn't as high as, as it should be. Yeah, I, I I think you you want to separate these out. These are two a bit different issues in that, uh, you know, much of the negative information that's that's circulating on social media is is completely made up. Or, but you're you're not wrong. I mean, they they do often point to, you know, they then try to back up these claims with with bad science. Right. Um, coffee's and, good. Coffee's bad. Coffee's good. Coffee's bad. Yeah. After a while, you know, the lay public can be entirely j- justified in saying, "Well, look, I'm, those scientists don't know what they're talking about." And Social media is at least giving me clarity. I'm curious, but I'm curious how much do you think that the the susceptibility to negative uh, no, false information on social media comes from the same place that 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 uh, the media is in when they choose which studies to highlight. They are looking for things that are counterintuitive, that are wacky, that are or that are quick fixes. That we want mm-hmm. the quick fix. We want the easy thing. We want to believe that the government is hiding some easy solution from us that we could just do because they want to. Because they want to, you know the drug companies to make money. And in fact, all you got to do is eat beetroot and you'll be fine. You know, or don't, yeah. let, your, don't let your kids watch TV things. and they'll, they won't get diabetes. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's such a complex issue. There, there are, so, there are so many facets to this. I mean, what you're talking about really is, uh, is it a vehicle for people that are cynical about the establishment or cynical about the government or cynical about the pharmaceutical industry? Whereas now I think that we're clearly in the realm of malicious actors in addition to that. Yeah. And there are, and it's well documented that there have been, you know, bots from Russia and bots from, you know, Ukraine and other places that are trying to dissemble sort of the comedy and the and the and the, the cohesiveness of our society by 
by propagating this false information. And it's not just political false information. Now it's getting to be very overtly false scientific information. Mm-hmm. And the whole vaccine hesitancy thing falls into that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's insidious. I, yeah, I, di- I didn't mean to put those two together only to say that I think that they are, they are attacking the same vulnerability that we have as human beings, that we have, you know, we, we are interested in the 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 something that that is the easy fix or the the wacky fix or the counterintuitive or whatever it is yeah. the ones that are least likely to actually be true and so we will we will you know we might think it's 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 crazy to believe that that vaccines are bad for you but if you are somebody who uh, is just looking you know who doesn't trust the information that you're getting and you hear this you know I can prevent something that no one else has the cure for or the prevention of. Maybe I'm going to listen. See, I, you know, I, I would also put fault not, not only at social media, but I, I, I put fault at the advertising industry and and how mm. many advertisements, whether it's radio, whether it's TV, or whether it's print media, um, promulgate a seeming cure for an anxiety or an ailment. And at the end of it, they put in very small print or they say very quickly that this is not intended to be a medical device or a cure for any any particular disease. Prevagen. What, what are you thinking Prevagen of? Prevagen <laughs> was the one that we covered in depth. But there Do are they have s- that, that, that caveat in their materials? The Prevagen yeah. people? Oh, yeah, they all do. They all do. Because the they're, the they're not FDA. Right, right. Approved. So they all have that last very very, you know, sort of mild disclaimer that this is not intended to be a medicine, but the, you know, you're, 90, so you're not the first about, 99% of it is, is, is being sold as if this is going to cure your, your memory loss. And it's, you're uh, not talking you, about drugs. You're talking about this one supplements. supplements. I'm, ta- I'm talking about, yeah, yeah. you know, all of the false yep. snake oil claims that are out there yep. and our government the United States government is hands off because that industry is so powerful that they don't have any of the same FDA restrictions that Chris talked about previously, which are really, really rigorous and need to be to protect us against those drugs. Yeah. Um, so let me just just shift a bit of, because I, I said in the beginning that I was totally skeptical when I first read this. And the reason that I'm skeptical actually is, is a different issue, which is to say, uh, I'm I'm skeptical that journals have a role to play because I don't think it's as the the, the way to combat uh, misinformation is not accurate information. It's not a rational process. It seems no, to me it's not no, that people not. are saying, "Oh, here's here's better information." I will now have changed my mind. It's you know people are are believing it because it it fills some need for them or whatever. That I it's don't faith. know whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know to to counteract that, you need a strategy that is not necessarily the most you know uh, straightforward and above board. You might need something that is is similar to the way that this misinformation is being disseminated, and that's not a role for journals to be playing. No. My point is. Influencing the way people think and what people believe is is a whole science in of itself, and journals are not placed to be able to do that. So sure, journals play a role in the sense that they should be putting out good information, but I don't think they have a major role to play in this. It's it's other people who've got to do this. I agree. Last. Any any last points? No, I'm, I find the whole thing is so depressing. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to our amazing and amusing. I am gonna we gotta I, amuse ourselves because we're all now feeling bad. I am gonna I'm gonna uh, take the liberty of going first this time. All right. And uh, so my amazing and amusing. Once again, I do as I always seem to do these days. I go back to a a Twitter handle that I find interesting or or, or a way of disseminating information which happens to be on Twitter at this point. But it's it's talking about a, a bigger issue. 
So we have spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the replicability crisis, reproducible studies, how we get more better reproducible science. And one of the groups that has played a big role in this has been the Center for the Center for Open Science. Do you all do you remember we've talked about them? Mm-hmm. So the Center of Open Science has done uh, a number of they, they put together a number of tools that you can go to their website and you can use to uh, identify ways to create more reproducible research, pre-registration tools, all, all that kind of stuff that we've talked about on this podcast. So we know a lot that the Open Center for Open Science has, has done a lot to create more reproducible science. The question is, are you familiar with the Center for Open Sandwiches? Oh. Wow. Is the, that based in India, the, in, in New Delhi? No, it is not. Oh. The Center... <laughs> The Center for Open Sandwiches is committed to reproducible sandwich recipes. Really? And they they take this very, very seriously. That is why I pulled that away from you. That is a an example of a failed Ugh. replication of a sandwich. Which uh, ones are the challenging ones to reproduce? Uh, there's all kinds of them. I don't know, but you can go on their Twitter handle. So they are, they are their Twitter handle is at Open Sandwiches. And so you can read their tweets, things like, Mustard is not technically a sauce, so open sauce guidelines may not apply. Pickles on top, in the absence of a pre-recipe, may indicate pickle hacking. <laughs> pickle curvature should be measured oh with God. a pickle curve analysis, to be sure. There's clearly a lot to digest here. God. Wow. Oh, this is nerdism gone. That's food for wild. Uh, I, I won't read them all to you, but they go on and on with some... <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm glad to hear this. On, on Twitter, everybody agrees that hashtag open sandwiches and hashtag pre-recipes are the best. But in the outside real world, unrecipied closed sandwiches are still being made and served everywhere. And people actually eat them. Well, I just know that you should not take baking advice for people who live in Denver. Ours? <laughs> Why? Well, because of the high altitude. Everything changes the way you cook. I see. Our speaking fees for talks on open sandwiches will always be zero. If you want us to talk about the implicit aioli test, well, that's different. <laughs> All wow. right. Chris. Wow. I like it. Chris, right. what do you got? All right. So this is another one that I think will amuse Donthea, uh, particularly given the conversations we were having today. Uh-huh. So first of all, I love to start sometimes with quizzes. What are the defining features of mammals? Live young. Yep. They've got fur or hair. They're yep. warm-blooded. Yep. They feed their... They feed their young. Yep. Okay. So, the, and they're... they're, they're you, what did you say? They've got they're hair. They're warm-blooded. They feed their... They're, 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 give birth to live young. And they give birth to live young. Okay. So, this is this is the key thing. Now, we are child... Maternal child health researchers. You know, we're mostly child health researchers, but we also study... We? Uh, well, except for Matt. He's <laughs> committed to other... Adults. Adults problems. But the maternal part of this is like, you know, one of the main causes of, of, of maternal mortality is, is, is hemorrhage, mm. right? So this article that I found here, it's like a really interesting sort of evolutionary long look at like, what are the adaptations that need to exist to allow mammals to do what we do, which is to have long parturitions and therefore to have a placenta. Long what? Parturitions. What's that? Long, excuse me, long gestations. gestations. Me, long gestations, which, which requires that you have a placenta. And so if you sort of recapitulate, you know, evolution, we go back to the reptiles. And the reptiles don't have placentas because they lay eggs, okay? But they're also not mammals for a variety of reasons. So the first mammal-like animals are the monotremes, which are like platypuses and echidnas when you're living in Australia. And they are warm-blooded and they nurse, but they also lay eggs. 
Mm-hmm. So they're they're a little bit different. They're sort of on that pathway from kind of a between, they're kind of a hybrid. And then the first sort of like really mammal-like things which have a placenta are the marsupials. So like a kangaroo, right? But the the, the platypuses are not marsupials. No, they're monotremes. Oh, I didn't know that. They're on they're monotremes. So so the. The marsupials have a different strategy, which is that they do have a placenta, but the placenta is very shallow in its inability to embed into the womb. Um, so it doesn't penetrate deeply, and it doesn't make an intimate contact between the circulation of the infant and the mother. And the the duration of the placentals being intact, or the placenta being intact, it's very short. It's like a month or two only. And then we know that what happens is that you the the, the mother gives birth to a really immature, almost like an embryo, which then has to find its way out of the, the vaginal cavity and crawl up through the, the mother's hairs across her belly and eventually find its way into the pouch and then to find a teat and to start to lactate. And you have to imagine that that Odyssey fails a lot of the yeah. time. Like they, they have to make it fast. It's very hot in Australia. They're not eating anything during that time. So if they don't get there quick, they're going to starve to death or desiccate or just fall off and, and die. And so this is an inefficient strategy. Far better would be to have a full placentation. But to do that, you, that means that the maternal placenta, uh, the, 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 the placenta on the infant side has to embed deeply with the maternal circulation so that it can, it can remain intact for like, for a human, for a full nine months. So that you can you can deliver a, a a largely mature baby, and in the case of like ungulates, they the, the you know the foals or the, have to be able to like get up and run within an hour. So to do that, you need to have a very sophisticated placenta. Now, the cost to that, which is really fascinating, is that when the placenta is the is released after delivery, you now have this raw wound. And if there were not also compensatory mechanisms to deal with the bleeding, the mother would bleed to death every single time. Mm-hmm. Plus, the, the the formation of this new placenta required requires menstruation, which is also another opportunity to, to, to die of bleeding or to become chronically anemic at least. And so to, to account for that, there had to be an earlier adaptation in, in terms of improved clotting. And so if you go back evolutionarily, the big transition between the reptiles and the monotremes, which were the platypuses, which lay eggs, and the reptiles, which are also laying eggs but are not lactating, so they're sort of further away from this, is that the, the monotremes were the first to have platelets. Mm. as what we sort of modest, like mm. modern day platelets mm-hmm. meaning that they have these these extraordinary cells called megakaryocytes that live in the in the bone marrow that they're called megakaryocytes because unlike most cells which have two copies of of you know every chromosome megakaryocytes have 128 copies on average so that's where there's the multiple cells and so they're metabolically very intense and their goal is to create lots of these tiny little things called platelets now Reptiles also have thrombocytes, which is another word for platelet, but their thrombocytes are very different. They are nucleated thrombocytes, and they're much bigger, and they're much less efficient. And the efficiency has to do with the fact that the, the, the reptilian thrombocyte is metabolically intense because it's got its own mitochondria, it's got its own genome, it's making its own proteins. And so it, it requires resources to keep these cells alive, and they have to be bigger. And that means that you have a different surface to volume ratio of these things. And the consequence is that when a platelet encounters a, like a chemical trigger to make it coagulate and, and, and clot, the the density of receptors on the surface is diluted by the expansion of the size of the cell. So actually you want your platelet cells to be as small as possible, and that means you have to shrink them down. And also the trafficking of granules from the surface to the, to the outside to trigger these chemical reactions have to be really short. And so what it looks like is that the, the evolution of modern-day mammals 
was only possible because of the prior evolution of platelets, of modern-day platelets, at the level of the monotremes. And that this was an exaptation, meaning it wasn't an adaptation that was, what was intended in some way to, to do this, but was something that facilitated the development of modern mammals. Fascinating. That is really fascinating. I just thought it was really cool. Wow. Really that interesting. Is, that is really cool. Did you cool. find it as interesting as you, he predicted you would? Yes, actually, That's I did. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I had no idea that uh, platypi had no platelets. Platy- they do. They do have platelets. Oh, so it's the, it's the reptiles one? that don't have platelets. Oh, right. How many right. times okay. on this show are we going to say the word platypi? Platypuses. Platy- it's Greek. Pi. It's not Greeks. It's not, Doesn't it's, that bring it's us Greek, back to Latin. episode number Platypuses. one? Platypuses. Is this episode number yep. 50? It's 52. like octopuses, not octopi. Three, 53. Sorry, two weeks ago was 52. All right, so, so to, take it, to take it from You've the, wasted another 24 hours. The, es, the, the oh, esoteric, you still have to go. esoteric and interesting. <laughs> I do have to go. Um, I have a paper which is sort of a, 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 an outgrowth of the paper that I reported on last podcast. Like a wart. Which is, that, uh, which is that people who are married for a long time, happily married for a long time, tend to look like one another. And then there was a, there was a report in Psychological Science, University of California, Michael Roy, Nicholas Kreisenfeld, which was a research report published in 2004. Do dogs resemble their owners? Oh, oh the answer to that is definitely, I do not. <laughs> What you have a I dog that doesn't look like anything. my dog? So they did. Uh, they they did an experiment where they looked at pictures of dogs and pictures of people. Forty five dogs and their owners were photographed separately, and judges were shown one uh, one owner, the owner's dog, and one other dog, and they tended to pick pairs of dogs, uh, dogs and people that looked similar, and th- it broke down completely along the lines of whether the dog was a purebred or a Ooh. mongrel. Huh. If the dog of the owner was a purebred, there was a striking correlation oh. in appearance between the individual and the dog. And if the dog was a mutt, there was no, no correlation whatsoever. Wow. <laughs> so people, people buy purebred dogs that look like them. Right. Wow. There was also or a cor- they turn into looking there like was them. Also a, they did also did a correlation on the behavior of the dog. And what was like the likely behavior the personality of, match. Of, the, of the owner yep. based on how they looked. So like the, the owner who looked like they were kind of laid back and kind of mellow, maybe not so bright, tended to own Labradors. Oh, yeah. And the really high strung individual who looked like they were active all the time, they tended to own Terriers. Yep. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes total sense. Do terriers terrorize? That is very cool. Don't know. That's pretty funny. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at PopHealthyX or you can tweet me at at PropMacFox or Chris at at ID.Gill or at dtheo one to get to Don. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange You can also website. write it on a $10 bill and mail it to us. Oh, whose idea was that? www.pophealthyx.org. Uh, so we want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. 